0: Lefford Fate is a 30 year veteran of the United States Air Force, retiring as Command Chief Master Sergeant for the 20th Fighter Wing, Shaw Air Force Base in South Carolina. Currently, he is a mental health professional, a certified facilitator and coach with the Napoleon Hill Foundation, a four time leadership book author, and TED Talk speaker. Tonight, he shares lessons he's learned when leadership mattered most. This is straight talk you won't hear anywhere else. I'm Galen Bingham, and this is Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership Podcast. Cheers. <sighs> All right. All right. So we are back at it again. And this guy, this is a new friend. This is someone that I just met. Yeah, you know, It was such a connection that I said, man, we I got to get you in here talking about whiskey jazz and leadership. And either I poured it on kind of strong or he felt the same same connection because he said yes <laughs> and so here we are and uh you guys heard a little bit about this guy this is Leffert fate this guy is one of the purest leadership dudes that I've come in contact with for a while gonna I'm gonna go ahead and get started with my little thing here that I'm gonna be drinking but before I do I gotta I gotta bring you in Leffert ask my question
1: what you drinking well bro i'm drinking straight up coke original coke
0: (laughs) (laughs) hey there is nothing wrong with straight up as a matter of fact since i knew you were going to be drinking coke i brought a coke what (laughs) (laughs) and so uh i'm gonna go ahead and open up this is the original oh man i tell you some folks in Atlanta probably need to pay me for that.
1: Yeah, they're gonna need that's, that's the original Georgia stuff right there. That, <laughs> and, that, that and, should be an endorsement.
0: That's right. That's right. You know, because I'm 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 doing the whiskey thing, I'm gonna hit this, I'm gonna top this off with some some Evan Williams, uh single barrel vintage. And uh this is straight Kentucky, but you know, this is gonna put a little extra special on top of that coke. And I'm gonna sit back and just let you tell your story. Oh my God, this is pretty good. As I taste this, <laughs> go ahead, Luffer, do, do your thing, man. <laughs> tell tell that story you shared with me about kind of your background and how leadership <laughs> just seems to just kind of pour out of every conversation that you seem to enter into.
1: Well, again, thanks, bro. Appreciate it. Uh, I, I got an opportunity to meet you when we were doing the Napoleon Hill presentation. And so that was a great time. There was an instant connection. I was like, I know this, brother, it's it's crazy, right? But I am the support services director for the city of Sumter, South Carolina. And I don't like to say my side hustle or my side job. I say my passion is to be a speaker, a coach, a trainer. That is what I love doing. And my purpose is to help young people and military veterans, you know, because there's a lot of issues, there's a lot of struggle going on. And and that is my passion. Some would say that is my ministry. I I wouldn't have said that years ago. That that's a ministry, but that's what that is for me. And uh, I was in the Air Force for thirty one years. I retired as the uh, Command Chief of the twentieth Fighter Wing, which was the premier F sixteen Wing. Our job was to kill people and break stuff, and we Ooh. did it better than anybody in the world. Right?
0: Oh my gosh. Okay. So wait a second. Hold up. <laughs> You said you were in the Air Force. Yes, they don't let just anybody in the Air Force. I mean, I can't just like fill out an application and and
1: well, you you know, show
0: up on Tuesday <laughs> and <laughs> and you know give me one of those give me one of those high priced airplanes <laughs> because I want to see if I can fly. You've got to like get into that before you can. You got to go through some training.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the cool thing about the Air Force. Air Force is a, is a city in and in a world within a world because almost anything you could do in the civilian sector, you could do up there. You got doctors, you got lawyers, you got clerks, you got supply chain, you got hotel, you have public affairs, you have everything. You know, I joined when I was 17 years old and I was blessed to 31 years later, I left as the top 1% of the top 1% of that that Air Force. And leadership from one, leadership from day one was what they indoctrinated you into and started growing you to that. And if you was either up or out in a way, so you learned it or you had to wash out. I found myself in a good space because I tell people there's two things that I was really, really good at. I can work hard and for the most part, I can follow directions because I got one of the old school pops from Georgia and it was like, do it. It wasn't no when or why, it was done or you were catching something. And uh, the young people say he had hands, my pops had hands. So <laughs> I, so when I went into the environment where all you needed to do was to follow directions and work hard, that was some good stuff for me. For the, for the most part, that was some good stuff for me.
0: Clearly you figured it out. Oh yeah. And you transitioned because to be the top 1% of the top 1% of the Air Force, that's saying a whole lot. And uh, as I said before, man, I am just so honored to have this conversation with you on something that we both have passion around, and that's that's this idea of leadership. And 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 for me, and I'd love to get your thoughts about this. For me, there there are two kinds of people that enjoy and talk about leadership. There are those who understand the academics of leaderships, the theory, and there's a place for that. I actually enjoy the philosophy and the psychology and the theory of leadership as well. But at the end of the day, nobody eats unless somebody kills something. Yeah. And when you're in a business, that means you gotta translate that concept into actually making things happen. So what what are your thoughts about the conceptual side of it versus the practical, hands-on, let's get some things done side of it. What, what, how do those two combine, and what's the marriage between the two?
1: See, you, you said something, Galen, that I love because many people are like this or that. There's a phrase. It is the and and the or, right? A lot of people say it's this or that, it's this and that because I know a lot of people that are very tactical, practical leaders, they get it done. They're like from here to here. And that's amazing because you learn it in the trenches, but there is such a thing as the study Mm -hmm. of leadership, the study and to study something you got to pay attention. You got to look at people that's been there, done that, got the t-shirts, the failures and the successes. And if you only figure that I'm going to lead based on the mistakes that I make and and my own interpretation of leadership. I don't think you're as good a leader as you could be. I didn't say you want to get a leader. I don't think you're as good a leader as you can be. So I think the truly great leaders study leadership. So there is an academic side and there is an actual practical, tactical side of that.
0: I love that. I love that. And then likewise, you do have to have a combination of the both because you know, those who just sit in the classroom and talk about leadership. I, I believe that all learning comes from experience, either your own or someone else's.
1: There you go. There you go. Right. Hey, it's that great philosopher, Mike Tyson. Hey, all good until you get punched in the mouth. And, <laughs> uh, and leadership, <laughs> literally, you're getting punched in the mouth on an everyday, everyday basis. Um, I study. And I train under and am certified under a guy named John C. Maxwell, number one leadership guru in the world. He is a leadership guru. And he, he likes to quote that there's never two easy days in a leader's life. Something's going to go on. And if there's not anything going on, they don't need you. Leadership is hard. Leadership is a study. Leadership is awesome. I mean, you say all that because I never want anybody to think, "Oh, man, that sucks. And no, it's good. It's good because you can impact and you can influence people to make a difference in someone's life. so I, I love I love the art and the science of leadership.
0: fantastic, fantastic. So tell me a little bit more about you know some of the work that you've done and some of the leadership experiences that you've had because I, i'm I'm always enamored by folks with military experience because i I, I don't have military experience. <coughs> Uh, but I've I've got a number of friends, and when we have these conversations, I'm talking about, you know, this salesperson that I was able to give him a different perspective on how to approach a customer or a client, and we won the day. And right. and they're talking about, you know, yeah, we we had a platoon that had to round this corner because folks were shooting at us, and all my soldiers came back alive. And there's right. just a different there's a different magnitude. <laughs> to our you know, story.
1: It, it It is a different magnitude, but it's, you know what, some of the things that you can do in your environment, I couldn't do. You know what I mean? So it's different types of leadership. In 2004, I deployed to Kirkuk, Iraq, and this was the real wild, wild west. We were actually in one of Saddam Hussein's complexes that we took, right? So there were two leadership things that I that I went through and had to do different things with. One was on January 1st of 2005. We came under consistent mortar and rocket and small fire attacks on our compound. And we're in these berms and these bunkers where they basically put giant sandbags. I'm talking giant two or three ton sandbags and concrete bunker buried over our head. And uh, there was this kid, I call him a kid because he had his 21st birthday a few days earlier, his first deployment. And he's under this thing with us and he's freaking out and he's crying and he's upset. And I'm like, dude, I did a major pain. Pop the titty out your mouth. Let's go. And it just started people laughing. It wouldn't be appropriate at church, it wouldn't be appropriate anywhere else. But in that situation, everybody started laughing and we started joking. You're going to be able to tell the story and it calmed the situation. And you said, Leffer, that doesn't sound like a lot of leadership. When you can shift the energy, when somebody's literally freaking out and in a situation like that, you can say or do some things that people will look at you in the wrong way later. This is a young brother that was strong. He was he was afraid, and he had a right to be afraid. But we were supposed to make it where he wasn't a punk. We were supposed to make it where he wasn't a cow. We were supposed to make it where it's okay. And we kind of got through. We played ball after that. We talked about that. And for years later, we can just talk about that story. That was just an amazing thing. And you say, well, what kind of leadership is that? Changing the flow of how people are feeling during a very dangerous time. That's a leadership lesson. Wow. A, a harder leadership process for me, Galen, was I was the senior enlisted advisor. We had 5,000 people on the, on the base, Army, Air Force. We had some joint combined forces, which were like Gurkha people that were, and we had Iraqis. We were going to transfer the Iraqi Air Force We were going to get them back together, give them their base back and let them do their bidding. The problem was that they had to live on base with us. We call it a FOB, a forward operating base. It was real hard to have people that were enemies of ours two years ago, sleeping on the base, all of that. And we had to make this thing happen in eight days and trying to convince a bunch of airmen, a bunch of soldiers and us that this was a good idea and sometimes you have to be i told you earlier when we talked you're in a glass bubble and if the chief or the general and the colonel are crying and freaked out everybody else is so we had to put on our faces we had to walk the walk and we had to bring our people along with us and that was one of, to me one of the hardest lessons out there because behind closed doors I got to be honest. We weren't sure. <laughs> we were like, Hey, uh, yeah, we here, we're in the middle of a spot and we're giving it back. These people literally tried to kill us before. And so now we're, we we got to be G on and, and going together. So that was a, it was a pretty interesting process for me.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> I've often said, and actually I did a post a couple years ago about uh, this idea that leaders stand in the gap of uncertainty and help other people across. And because very often we don't know and we have an idea, we, we know how important it is, but we don't have the luxury of collecting all the data. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure in that situation, you couldn't have waited another hour for someone to rush in all the details of what you're getting ready to face. <laughs> You, you had to just, you had to just make and it And they happen. would
1: have been wrong too. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's not, it's not right. It's just planning is paramount, but planning, planning is just planning. And, right. and you do what you do to be ready for anything and be able to shift. You got to be able to shift and, and lead people as they need to be led.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, you mentioned John Maxwell and I had an opportunity to, hear John Maxwell and actually meet him, not like you, but but actually meet him at a conference. Mm -hmm. And someone just called me and they said, you know, Galen, I I know that you're into leadership. I've got this conference that we're going to be doing. Jeff Gidmore, this guy Eric Thomas, and and John Maxwell, do you want to come? I'm like, okay, so, you know, I got a history in sales. So Jeff Gidmore is he literally wrote the book on sales. And Eric Thomas is the new cat that's just like wrecking havoc in this, <laughs> this speaker space. And I could not look at my say, myself in the mirror and call myself having anything to do with leadership without bowing down to John Maxwell. He, I th- he's written like what, 40 books or something?
1: Uh, yeah, a lot. <laughs> actually, actually, I think he's got 80 something books. Oh. Crazy. Oh. Right.
0: So one one of the things, and actually this is the opening quote to my book. One of the things that he said was each of us influences at least ten thousand people during our lifetime. So the question is not whether, but how you use your influence. And so I, you know, I'd, I'd love to get your take on what is influence. You know, I think your story that you just shared was a great example of that. But what is influence? And this, just, this notion that everyone influences something, I, I'd love to just have you talk about that for a second. You know,
1: everybody influences someone for the positive or the negative. And John also said that leadership is influence. Nothing more, nothing less getting someone to do something, helping someone doing something, changing a mindset on how somebody sees or looks at something. And there's a difference between the way somebody sees it and the way somebody looks at it, you know, right? You could see it and that's just sight, but how you look at it and what you often look for, you receive. And so to me, the influence part is how do you move somebody in the right direction? I, I think influence is extremely important, whether you talk about Jeff Gilmore. I mean, those three people, it's so funny to me when you talk about the people on my my invisible council, my my director of the board, those three people are on there. Jeffrey Gilmore, the sales guy, I, I study him. And and I actually, I'm certified. I, I do certification with John Maxwell, Jeffrey Gilmore certification, and Eric Thomas, I'm in his. Because those people do the things that I want to do when I grow up.
0: Uh, I mean, yeah, you can't learn any from from better mentors than those three. Exactly. In exactly. those spaces, I, I'm sure that there are like stronger players. I just don't know but, who they are.
1: Oh, there's my my boy here, Dennis Kimbrough. Same thing, but Dennis is in their circle. Those same. You know, there's just, it's just that, but yet i jump around because my mind is going like a million miles an hour because you, you took me again. It shows me how much we have in common, but yes, influence is just that. And, and this is what I found. Sometimes people influence you or you influence people that you will never know Mm. that you touch them and that they're acting a certain way because of something that they saw you do.
0: Wow. So now that, that brings me to this question of given what you just said, that people are always watching and you don't know how what you're doing is going to influence someone. How important then is authenticity?
1: I think it's hugely important. I think it's something that people are throwing around without necessarily knowing what authenticity means. We've been talking about authenticity for a long time. Get real, man. <laughs> you know, we've been saying, but now it's cool, Brene Brown. But, but it's true. I think sometimes people think being authentic can be rude. Oh, this is how I am. You just got to No, no. Authentic has been the real you. But not just the real you, the best real you. And people ask me, what do you mean Lefer, when I say, when you say the best real you, who you really are as a person is your authenticity. I mean, if you struggle with something and you let people know, you know, I, I currently struggle with that. That's being authentic. Walking around with, you know, with the S on your chest and nothing really affects you. That's not being real. That's not being authentic. That's That's kind of how I see that.
0: I love it. Uh, I have um, always appreciated that. And I sense that in you when we first met and had our conversation. But when we had kind of a a pre-conversation to this podcast, and you were like nervous because you were saying, hey, look, I don't drink. I don't drink. I mean, you got whiskey in the title of your podcast and I don't drink. I actually gained more respect for you for that because you know back to what you're saying so much of our lives and i'm I'm speaking about myself now 30 years in corporate america and uh, a big part of being successful as an african-american in corporate america is about playing the game because corporate America is a game. It oh, yeah. feels real, it smells real. You're you convinced that it's real, but it's not. It's, it's a game. You have to decide if you wanna play the game. And part of that game for African Americans, I found, is you have to be good, but not too good, because being too good is problematic. But for you to say, hey, look, this is who I am, I wanna let you know, because I don't want you to be surprised, but this is who I am that is something that you don't see a lot. So tell me a little bit about where where that came from because the way you did it was just so refreshing to me.
1: Well, thank you. As I said, I spent a lot of time in the Air Force and the military period back in the day when I joined, I joined in 1981 and alcohol and cigarettes was huge. That's what everybody did. I remember we were in basic training or technical school and we'd be all in formation, standing at attention. The T.I., light them if you got them. And so people would break out and go smoke. And they'd be sitting around chilling, BSing, grab. You know, they doing all the stuff. And us that did not smoke was standing out in the sun. we just standing out there. And the first week, there was pro- out of a 40-person squad, there was probably 20 of us in the squad standing out there. Second week, uh, about 10. And, and there was really about five or six of us by the end of it that was standing there that was not drinking or was not smoking because everybody just started doing it because it was a comfort break. And I still, I mean, part of it because I had allergies as a kid and I know what cigarette smoke did to me. So I just, but I wasn't going to do it. And um, the drinking part is that I'm an adult child of an alcoholic. My dad drank. I mean, he was... Fortunately or unfortunately, he was a happy, drunk guy. He was a great guy. He worked his butt off, right? He worked real hard, but he would binge every once in a while, or or he would be a a big drunk. There was a reason behind that. His namesake, his 19-year-old son was killed in Vietnam, and he was never the same after that. My oldest sister, who was right under my, my brother, also became alcoholic. A lot of things happened, and a lot of people in my family drank, and they drank hard. And I was afraid that I was going to end up being like them. And so what I did was I just said, "I am a teetotaler. I'm drinking nothing. I'm drinking nothing." And that is a hard thing being an Air Force security policeman, where the culture is drinking. It was funny. What was the lady? I can't remember her name. She said, you should have named this women, whiskey, la-da-da-da. <laughs> the culture for a guy, a young airman was women and a whole bunch of other stuff. That's what we did. And for me not to do that because of a fear, that was one of the main reasons. But I, I kind of held my guns. The story I told you is I was in, uh, stationed in Mildenhall, England. And I was a basketball player, played a lot of ball. I'll brag a little bit. I was pretty nice. Right? <laughs> I, I do talk a little trash, right? But I was pretty nice. But we played this game and I, we had gotten together and I went to this, the dorm with these guys. And this brother offered me a drink. He was from Chicago, a brother named Stokes. I, I, I remember him like it was yesterday. And he offered me a drink and I was like, nah, bro, I'm good. And I did not realize, I didn't have the emotional intelligence to realize that I had offended him serious. I guess from where he was, Detroit, Chicago, somewhere, if you did not take a drink when a brother offered you a drink, you were dissing him. And so I didn't realize that he didn't like me and for a while. I was like, I don't care. Uh, but my boy was talking to him and he came and told me that, you know, you offended him and he can't stand you because you played him. I'm like, I didn't play him. But this is what I'm realizing. Sometimes you say no differently. I don't know I did this, But I've gotten feedback from people sometimes that I can be like, nah, man, I don't know what I did. But bottom line is, I went to this brother and I apologized. I told him my story. I said, look, I am afraid that if I ever tackle the beast, the beast may tackle me, so I don't mess around. And he gave me love behind that. But I had to learn that you can say yes, that you can say no, but there's a way to say yes, and there's a way to say no.